show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. I'm your host, T.L. Putnam. Thanks for joining me here in the midst of the festivities of the, the octave of Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas. We can finally say that now. And here's a challenge for you as you go out and run your errands today and you make your way around uh, around town. Just wish people a, a, a Merry Christmas and see what <laughs> what they do. Because I do this uh, every year just because it's fun. And uh, and, and because this goes back to that thing of um, always be prepared to give an answer with the hope that's within you. But do so with gentleness and respect. Well, how can you give an answer if there's no question? So go out and live a questionable life. This is one of those things that I do kind of strategically. One, uh, just because I have not yet allowed myself to say Merry Christmas a whole bunch. I've, I've done it here and there uh, when when it was appropriate to do so for um, for the audience that I was with. But for the most part, I I just don't engage in that here at the beginning. I I do that whole thing that um, that I was horrified by when I was a Protestant. I'll tell people happy holidays because it's not Christmas yet. And I know that I'm saying happy Advent because it is a holy day, right? We are in the midst of these holy days. Uh, but then, <clears throat> you know, that I get people lulled into this sense of confidence. So he's going to say happy holidays. And Christmas rolls around. And then all the way through Epiphany, I'm telling people Merry Christmas, even on New Year's Day. And they're looking at me like I am from another planet. Uh, but it gives the opportunity, sometimes, rarely, but sometimes, uh, to explain, well, you know, I'm I'm Catholic and I'm celebrating the Christmas holidays all the way through uh, through Epiphany. So I have the you know the whole twelve days of Christmas and Twelfth Night, and and we can just really go for it. We're still doing our Christmas parties and our everything else, and um, it just opens for an opportunity that you know most people are going to look at and kind of shrug off and move on. But every once in a while, you'll get an interested listener. You'll get someone who's asking a question. And it takes me back to this uh, this reading in the book of Acts where Paul is in Athens and he, he proclaims Christ in him crucified. He starts off by saying, I see that you're a very religious people. I see that you have this, um, this idol. That, well, he doesn't say this. He says this, uh, this altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God because I know him right? So he starts off there. It would be like us saying, I see that you're a very festive people. Ho, 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 and whatnot, right? Uh, and and then launching into it from that, let me tell you what I'm celebrating, right? So here's this opportunity. And it just kind of reminds me of the story that happened this last week. Uh, we we get a lot of rain. I live up in the Pacific Northwest, um, now just just about seven miles south of, of Canada. And uh, so... <laughs> We, we experience a lot of rain up here during, during the winter. We don't get a lot of anything else. And the other day, it started just a little bit to snow, just a little bit in the midst of the rain. Well, the kids saw the snowflakes, and they put on all of their, uh, their warm stuff, the coats and the boots and the everything else. And by the time they got the coats and the boots and everything else on, it had ceased to snow. It had gone back to rain. But you know what? they were in the mood to go and celebrate the snow. So they walked outside 
dressed for snow and ran around in the rain for a while. And I'm sure that to the outsider, this was like, what has these people are crazy. Uh, but then after they did their little rain dance or snow dance or whatever they did, it did start to snow again. We got a nice little accumulation and and I have a Extra people in my household as um, the front and backyards are both populated by snowmen. Uh, but they had this this joyful exp- um, response, this joyful response to uh, to what was provided to them. And they went out and they celebrated in ways that just looked strange. Well, here we are. We have something so much better than snowfall that temporary uh, bit of joy that fades away as it melts, right? We have God with us, Emmanuel, the presence of of the, the divine Godhead come and take on our nature so that we could then be reconciled to God the Father. We have the best possible thing to celebrate. And so it makes sense that you and I might choose to celebrate in ways that might otherwise just seem a little bit odd, right? So here we have this opportunity. We have these eight days of Christmas, this octave. And then beyond that, we go through Twelfth Night. And then beyond that, we have the opportunity now to go to the baptism of the Lord and and in some way to keep this Christmas spirit alive in our hearts all the way through February 2nd, the presentation of the Lord in the temple. Now, we've talked about this on the show before. Um, you know, we have, as a family, uh, found a way to really stretch out the Advent season, right? We do a couple of things to take uh, and and put the focus of Christmas on Christmas Day. So we we put the tree up uh, in a kind of a protracted way. We, we put our greens up, our kind of normal greens up on the first Sunday of Advent, put the tree up on the second Sunday of Advent, light it on the third day, third Sunday of Advent, and decorated on the fourth Sunday of Advent so that we kind of have this trickling out of Christmas spirit. It's not just like all there and then all gone. Uh, we celebrate the feast day of St. Nicholas with special cookies. We uh, Then as we get to the fourth week of Advent, we begin to make the traditional Christmas cookies. But I, I came to realize something this year is that we do the run-up as a family. We do the run-up to Christmas pretty well But then we get to Christmas Day and we do the Midnight Mass and we have our traditions and we open our presents and we do all that stuff. Uh, And then somewhere in that octave of Christmas, we'll do a carol sing where we invite some people over and we sing. But that's kind of it. And this should be a season, a, a lengthy season, where we continue to celebrate Christmas. It's not a matter of opening the presents and then you look at it and 30 minutes and all the hard work's gone and all the paper's shredded and everyone's kind of just bleh. And there's uh, kind of a letdown uh, Christmas afternoon. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I've, I've watched it happen. And so how do we maintain that Christmas celebration, the celebration of the mystery of the incarnation where God became man so that we could be reconciled to God and become, as as the scripture says, sharers in the divine nature. How do we continue that celebration in a way that's fitting? It takes a little bit of imagination, but if anything, this pandemic has given us. It's the opportunity to break our, our kind of our molds of cultural expectations 
and look for, uh, for creative ways to thrive. And so here, let's take a moment. I, I did this recently uh, as we were getting ready for Thanksgiving. Um, my typical celebration of Thanksgiving has been centered around family. That's, that's what the whole celebration is for. Uh, it's not, but it, it's what it was for in my growing up years. Uh, and we didn't have that this year. Because of where we were and where our family was, we were precluded from being able to make that celebration. And so we still did all of the trappings, right? We still made the feast. We still spent the time in the kitchen. We still did all of the stuff that you would expect. The recipes were the same. And we, we celebrated as, as well as we were able. But as I'm sitting here watching this unfold, I begin to think about how, how we celebrate and what we celebrate how that informs us and helps us know something about ourselves and something about our place in the order of things. And so if that's the case, if how and what we celebrate helps inform who we are and where we belong, then it seems to me that our Catholicism ought to be spurring us on and encouraging us and empowering us to celebrate the things that matter. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to quit celebrating Thanksgiving, but I looked at how much effort we put into that feast, and I think we put more effort into that feast than we do any other feast, including Christmas and Easter, although we do still have a feast on Christmas and Easter. But what would it look like for us to begin celebrating in a deeper way, starting with the the the, the end in mind? So maybe... A great place to start might be, well, one, Christmas. What can we do that is fitting to celebrate this lengthy Christmas uh, season? Maybe another place to start would be the the parish feast day. So I I go to church at St. Joseph's. So um, on one of Joseph's or multiple of Joseph's feast days, what would it look like for us, not just as a family, but also as a parish to get together and to say, We're going to do more than a potluck. We're going to do more than a getting together and chatting. We're going to get together and celebrate St. Joseph in a fitting way that helps us to know who we are, helps us with our identity as Catholics, our identity as parishioners of St. Joseph's, uh, with him as our patron, uh, and, and our identity with one another as members of this body of Christ in a particular time and place. And it helps us know how we belong, right? We belong to one another, where we belong in the diocese and in the universal church, where we belong in our broader society. These are questions that our celebration can help answer for us. I'm intrigued by this idea, and so today I wanted to talk a little bit more deeply about this. Uh, So we're going to talk with Dr. Jared Stott. He's the Associate Superintendent of Catholic Schools in the Archdiocese of Denver, teaches at the Augustine Institute there in Denver, Colorado, uh, and has recently written a book called Restoring Humanity, Essays on the Evangelization of Culture. It's available on Divine Providence Press, uh, which is an imprint of Wise Blood. Dr. Stott, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on air. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. So I was having this epiphany about Thanksgiving and realizing that the celebration that we had there was telling us a lot about who we were uh, in our culture, right? It's 
spoke about our national identity um, because it is a national holiday. It spoke about our familial identity because the traditions we bring to it come from our families of origin. Um, But it didn't really speak to us uh, directly about our Catholicism uh, because the way that we celebrated it really didn't bring that aspect in. So as I was thinking about this, my wife was getting very nervous. She was looking at me like, don't, don't you do, don't go there. But what would it look like for our celebrations to help us understand our, our, our identity and our place in our culture in a way that was fitting uh, and in a way that evangelized culture? Well, you know, really the, the heart of Catholic culture is the Eucharist, the great Thanksgiving, right? And so Thanksgiving as a secular holiday is, is one day in which we see something that we do every day, giving thanks to God coming out into our national life. And that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with, with national holidays and these kinds of celebrations. But, you know, the Eucharist is the heart of our feasting. It's, it's a spiritual feasting. I mean, e- even the, just the, the normal weekdays of the church we call ferias, uh, which are feasts. Uh, and so we're really feasting every day. But festivity in its deepest, deepest sense is an extension of the liturgy into the surrounding culture. So I, I would say one of the biggest problems I find with Catholic culture is that we go to mass. Wonderful. That's the heart. That's the most important thing. And then we have our secular holidays and celebrations over here. But really, it should be this extension of the liturgy into the surrounding culture. And we need to publicly celebrate uh, the great feast days. It's, it's not enough to say, okay, feast of the assumption. We went to mass. Check. Okay, right. now we're going to live just the day in, in normal fashion. Uh, it's hard to have festivity mm-hmm. because you could go home from Mass and have a dinner with your family, and that's great. And, and that is some semblance of festivity. Uh, but what's missing? Well, maybe like a procession, uh, you know, with uh, a statue of Our Lady from the parish in which you're able to really go through like kind of the heart of your community. Uh, and then you would come back to the church and you would have a big celebration right there. You would invite the whole town. And even if they're not all Catholic, fine, come celebrate with us and experience the joy that we have uh, where there would be, you know, food, drink, you know, music, dancing, good dancing, you know, not bad dancing, um, and all these kinds of things that really are this extension of the giving thanks and the rejoicing that we have within the liturgy itself. Well, and and as I think about this, we have, here we are just celebrating Christmas yesterday. Society has now moved on and, and we are just now entering into this Christmas season. Uh, And we've, as a family, have always kind of tried to, to find ways to celebrate Christmas within the family. And yet, as you mentioned, there is this, this larger component to it saying, okay, well, what are the things we celebrate? How does that help us know who we are? But one of the things that we are as Catholics is we're not just individual family units. We belong to one another. So how is it that we can um, can celebrate this specific holiday in a way that calls to mind we're Catholic uh, as a family, but we're also Catholic as a as a parish and as a, a member of our of our city and our society uh, to to be to begin to highlight those things in in maybe integrate a little bit of our, of our lives around our faith, right? And we're not just, oh, well, we celebrated this and now I'm going to go over here and go shopping and go over there and do that. But 
Um, but really to be Catholic in our celebration and to take that celebration into the rest of our day. Yeah, I, I would say there's really three elements of genuine Catholic festivity. There's preparation, liturgy, and then celebration uh, in the culture mm-hmm. following it. And so even though we're, we're done with Advent, it's important to kind of look back to that first, to say that to really be able to celebrate a feast, you have to remove all of the obstacles. Uh, it, it's hard to really experience the joy that's being given to you in the liturgical celebration when you have all of this baggage. And so we fast before we feast. And, and I'll never tire of saying this. Advent was created as a penitential season, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, okay, I know in canon law it doesn't require us to do any penance during Advent, you know, uh, like maybe there was in the past or like we see in Lent and, and even a minimal way right now. Uh, but we need to recover that. And, and I don't think that means being the Grinch who stole the pre-Christmas, right? But <laughs> if you're a Catholic organization, why not wait and, and have your kind of parish Christmas party or your school Christmas party? Or in my case, I work for the Archdiocese of Denver, your Archdiocesan Christmas party after Christmas. Why do that during Advent? Let, let's really make this a preparatory time. We'll catch people's attention. That will be a witness. Say, hey, we're going to have a Christmas party um, on January 3rd. And people are like, what? well, wait a second. We're, we've already moved on. And it's like, no, 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 no. And then you explain why, right? Or, you know, like I said, it's not that you can never go to somebody else's Christmas party, you know, pre, but nonetheless, I mean, you want that to have a different character, uh, that preparatory time. And you can really get deep into that, you know, as a family. One of the things uh, we, we do as, a, as an individual family is we find, and of course, it's going to be different this year because of, because of quarantine measures, um, but we, we always do sometime during the octave of Christmas, third, fifth day of Christmas, a, uh, a carol sing. Because I grew up in the Protestant church and we had all these lovely carols. And of course, in the Catholic church, we don't sing those carols during Advent. And then you've got like two Sundays in Christmas and then it's over. So I'm like, I, I need I need these carols. And so we invite people over and we say, bring all your leftover Christmas candy. We're going to have, uh, you know, uh, eggnog and, and hot cider and hot chocolate. And we're going to sing Christmas carols all night long as a way to to draw in some some people that are in our community to celebrate maybe more fully a little bit of, uh, of Christmas in a way that that's theologically substantial, but then also just joyous. Yeah. You know, there's so much to recover there, right? So obviously the, the, the liturgical celebration of our Lord's birth is the center. So you have that preparatory period of a few weeks, you have the liturgical celebration, and then there's actually all these different layers of Christmas celebration. You have the octave, uh, which culminates in the circumcision of our Lord. I know we're kind of embarrassed about that, but I, we shouldn't be. This, this is a, a very important reminder of his humanity and the first blood that he shed for us, which is even a foreshadowing of the cross. And, and now we, we've brought the celebration of Our Lady's motherhood into that more strongly. It was, it was always there, but that's being emphasized more. But they should be seen as something that go together because our, our Lord was circumcised on the eighth day. And that's that octave that, that completes the first celebration of Christmas. But then we have the 12 days of Christmas. We sing the song and we're like, well, what does even that mean? Why do we have 12 days of Christmas? If you ask the average Catholic, why are there 12 days of Christmas? I don't think they could answer that. Uh, And it really, it is viewing the epiphany Mm -hmm. as 
the next stage of the Christmas celebration. Um, it's not only the wise men, but when you look in the East, Byzantine Catholics and the Orthodox, uh, it's also the baptism of our Lord. And then his first sign, uh, the miracle at Cana. Uh, how do those things all go together? They're the manifestation of our Lord's divinity. So he came to us in this hidden kind of way, right? He's, he's born quietly uh, in the manger, uh, in the stable, in this place in the manger. Uh, but then what we see is um, 13 days later, uh, we have this celebration of now, okay, the proclamation of who he is. Uh, being manifested to the representative of the nations and the wise men. And then the father himself testifying to that for the first time at the baptism. Um, and then the world seeing a sign of this at Cana. Mm -hmm. And so it really is the unveiling of the meaning of Christmas for us. So 12 days of celebrating Christmas, the epiphany doesn't end that, right? right? It, it intensifies it, manifests it. And then it's traditional to continue to sing uh, Christmas hymns all the way up until the presentation or the purification of Our Lady. So and it's, even then with the Epiphany, it's not done. We want to continue singing those carols. You know, we're not even done, um, you know, just in those 12 days, right? Let's keep it going all the yeah. way to February 2nd. Now, I still have a little, uh, a, a little bit of a, a bone to pick, right? So we, we have taken um, liturgically, we've now we have the the feast of the baptism of the Lord, which has been separated out from the Epiphany and the the where we focus on the wise men. But there is that third mystery of the Epiphany that that kind of has gotten lost somewhere in the shuffle and doesn't get as much of a uh, of a an investment anymore as it used to with that that miracle at the wedding of Cana. That's that's neither here nor there, but that's a personal well, be, problem because we we now have a. Um, multi-year cycle, mm -hmm. certain Sundays, it does actually follow the baptism of the Lord on the next Sunday. Okay. Um, but nonetheless, you can still see how the Epiphany does celebrate all three mm -hmm. um, in actually the antiphons and the liturgy of the hours. Yeah. So somehow that antiphon is still there, thanks be to God, that says the Epiphany is celebrating all three of those mysteries in one. Mm -hmm. um, and just because now we broke out, the, the, and, the, and that's longstanding, right, to have a distinct celebration of the baptism in the West, but that doesn't mean that the baptism isn't also celebrated through the Epiphany. So for someone who may not have heard this before, you know, they, like me, they grew up, uh, you, you start celebrating Christmas right after Thanksgiving, and then uh, Christmas Day hits, and December 26th, Boxing Day is the day, <laughs> this is not what Boxing Day is, but you know, it's the day that you <laughs> box up all the Christmas gifts and, and you, all the Christmas decorations and put them away, because Maybe, maybe you get towards January 1st, maybe, but most of the time we take those decorations down pretty quick. So if that's been a person's experience, what are some places and ways that they can begin to explore what a, a Christmas celebration could look like uh, that, that would be fitting for the season? Mm -hmm. You know, there, there are great books um, that kind of go through some of these lost customs. I have one just sitting here. This isn't even planned. Religious Customs in the Family uh, by Father Francis Weiser. And he has a whole nother one as well. He has two different books that go through these traditions. And there are different traditions um, on the 12 days. The one that stands out to me, and this is probably because I'm author of The Beer Option as well, right. uh, but it is The Blessing of the Wine on St. John's Day. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But, you know, really, I, I think on these days, and we're off a lot of the 12 days of Christmas, not all of them, but usually a substantial amount of them, is to continue to do things that are celebratory on those days, right? We're, we're eating the Christmas treats on these days, and we are singing um, the, the carols, and we're gathering around the manger scene um, on these days. And the biggest thing is Twelfth Night, um, which is uh, January 5th, although, you know, now, you know, the numbering is messed up because we're, we're, we're moving many times, unfortunately, the celebration of mm-hmm. Epiphany to, to a Sunday. Uh, but nonetheless, January 5th and that night is kind of like the vigil of the Epiphany. And that was always the biggest celebration of Christmas publicly when you would, you know, go out, you know, singing in the streets and there would be the, the visit of the wise men already coming to the house and, um, there would actually be uh, people dressing up, you know, sometimes there'd even be like the, the kind of fool of the feast. And uh, there's actually, this is just kind of a little cultural reference, but actually even in the cartoon of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, that the crowning of, you know, the Feast of Fools and all of that is actually related to Epiphany. Uh, and so there was, you know, a lot of different kind of games and, and food and celebration on the 12th night and, and actually masquerade came into this as well. The twelfth night was the beginning of Carnival. Um, and so when you think of the masking of Carnival um, in Mardi Gras, it actually began um, with the twelfth night. So there'd be dances and all these kinds of things. And it was actually even the, a big day when, when uh, George Washington would have people to his home to celebrate Christmas. So he was a big celebrator of the twelfth night. So it wasn't even just Catholics, even um, in just English culture in general and other places in Europe. Um, so I think that's one thing that we can recover strongly, uh, within the 12 days is on the, on the 12th day, have a, have a big party because people are kind of focused more on family, um, Mm -hmm. for the celebration of Christmas. But if you want to have friends over and and do some fun things, dress up and dance and, and have, you can have a king cake because originally the king cake is not Mardi Gras, right? It's, it's associated with epiphany. So have your king cake on the twelfth night and and have a blast, you know, with friends. We have we have some friends who are um, bakers in in the diocese of Tulsa, and they have Panchianaya Bakery. They have all of these king king's cakes that go out, and we got to celebrate that with them. Uh, one Epiphany, we were there at their house. We had king's cake, and the rule that I learned then I don't know I, I may be saying this wrong, but if so, it's only because I understood it wrong. Was if you come out and you find the baby Jesus in the king's cake, there's a responsibility. You now have to make the tamales on the feast of the presentation. (laughs) So, um, you know, there's, you mentioned there's a a strong line of celebration in English culture, but by all means, cultures across the world celebrate uh, in really robust ways throughout the Christmas season. Uh, and, And these are are our treasures, right? They're, they're ours by virtue of us being Catholic and, and having that identity. And there's all kinds of ways that you can choose and find to celebrate this Christmas season. There's much more to come right after this, so don't go anywhere. But join the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. And let me know if you have a specific way that you celebrate these 12 days of Christmas. We're talking today with Dr. Jared Stott, and there's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam.
Inside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Putnam. We're talking today with Dr. Jared Stout. He, uh, he is the Associate Superintendent of Catholic Schools in the Archdiocese of Denver and teaches at the Augustine Institute there. Uh, in in Denver, Colorado, just at the uh, the base of the Rockies, I've had the opportunity to go there and uh, visit a couple of times. There's a great little coffee shop right at the entrance called Le Lege. Uh, take up and read, and uh, th- it's the first place I've ever had a rosemary maple coffee or something or other. And and the and the last time, I'll have to say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> So yeah, be- we have some interesting creations there, but it's a great place. <laughs> so if anybody's out in Denver, yeah, come visit us. A fantastic school there. Of course, you you might know if you are not interested or that's not kind of your realm of of high, uh, furthering your education, which is certainly an option. They also are the the purveyors of formed.org, some fantastic stuff there. If your parish doesn't have it, harass your director of religious education, director of faith formation, because there's fantastic Bible study stuff for the kids, all kinds of stuff um, that that we use in our house. You should use it at yours as well. We're talking about uh, Restoring Humanity, the essays on the, the evangelization of culture, written by Dr. Jared Stout on Divine Providence Press. And I'm intrigued by this notion, like I said at the beginning, of of the things that we celebrate, the things we choose to celebrate, and the ways we choose to celebrate them, really helping anchor our identity in in, we, in who we are and how we connect to the world around us. But there's a second aspect of that, and that's listed in your your subtitle, Essays on the Evangelization of Culture. So talk a little bit about your, your premise there of how our celebration— can actually impact evangelization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and of course, evangelization of culture is not the exact same thing as evangelization. So if you're evangelizing, you're directly proclaiming the good news of Christ. When we evangelize culture, what that means is that we want the way that we live to be in accord with what we believe. Mm-hmm. And so there's a fundamental rift in our culture between what we believe and how we live on a daily basis. So we're trying to straighten that out, to bring the culture in line and that is called the evangelization of culture. Bringing, at, at this point, it's not only bringing Christian values into the culture, but it is actually, and this is where the title of the book comes from, making our culture to be more human again. Because we need this good soil to support the faith. And so we just say, you know, as faith uh, builds upon reason, uh, grace builds upon nature, and our nature is being undercut. So as we are living our faith well um, in our lives, um, in our, at work, as a family, um, and trying to build strong community, all of these things that are a witness to living differently, to say, well, wait a second, you know, you know, we're all living here in this kind of isolated, more individualistic life. We're, we're rooted, you know, kind of dominated by technology. Um, and now, of course, you know, the identity politics are, are really, you know, just overwhelming our culture in so many ways. But yeah, you look at these people here. They're very joyful. They have a stronger community. Um, they're, they're rooted in strong convictions, but they're not, you know, kind of shouting everybody else down. Um, and I think that that can be a strong pool. I, we're going to need stronger communities. And we, and we want to invite people into them. It's not an, an enclave mentality, uh, but it is really saying that there are alternatives. 
Mm -hmm. I've helped to start two high schools here in Colorado, places where our young people can really flourish, where they can live a joyful life and they can live their faith uh, out fully. Um, And that I think there's other people that see that and say, I want that, you know, well, what is really behind this? How can we be a part of it? Well, and, and to your point, the evangelization of culture is something that is is groundwork and fundamental, but it leads and and I think eases the way for actual evangelization to take place down the road. Um, Absolutely, one of the things I mean, because you can only evangelize culture if you have faith, right? right? And how do you have faith? Because there's evangelization going on, so they reinforce one mm-hmm. another. Absolutely, one of the things you you brought up that I think is is just so essential. Um, is that we are people of faith, but many times we have allowed ourselves to to live in a way that is incongruent with our faith. So you talked about um, being joyful. And of course, I spend a lot of time on social media. That, that's not always the impression that Christians give off or that others have of us. Um, and, and so I wonder how much of this evangelization of culture is in some effect getting our priorities straight and allowing our faith to... Um, kind of saturate the, the core of, of our being and our, and our behavior. Yeah, I look at this in four different layers. Um, and, I, and I go into this in the book, particularly in my chapter on family life, because I think family is probably the, the best place where we can begin to rebuild Christian culture. But the first layer is prayer. And I already mentioned this, that the mass is, is the center of Christian culture. But our way of life, which is a, a one way of defining culture, our way of life, a shared way of life has to be rooted in prayer ultimately. That prayer shapes our time and it guides everything else that we do. So to live a Christian culture is to live in communion with God every single day through prayer. That's it. I mean, you can't have a Christian culture without it because it'll just be a shell. Mm-hmm. But then the second thing is thinking like a Christian. So I can say, you know, yes, I believe I'm living in communion with God, but what am I filling my mind with? Uh, and this is where we really have to look at the, the books that I'm reading, the music that I'm listening to, the media that I'm consuming, because, I mean, it literally is that you, you become what you eat. You are what you eat. And that's true with media. Absolutely. And so the sensibilities that you have, how you're forming your imagination, all of this um, is, is crucial. It's part of that soil, right? Because otherwise there is that tension that comes in here. So when, when it comes to family life, I think a lot of this is even just spending time together. Uh, reading out loud, talking to one another, right? Uh, this is crucial. And it flows into that next point. The third point then would be doing things together as a family, spending time outdoors, cooking meals together, working together uh, in the home. And that's really recovering the home because econ- economics means the, the kind of law of the household, the governing of the household. And so we need to make the home an economic center again, uh, because that's what keeps us together. If we're all just going different directions, right? The the home uh, kind of just ravels, unravels. That is, and then finally is building community um, with other because culture is a shared way of life. So I, I think making the parish not just uh, a you know somewhere you come to get your sacraments and leave right away. So I was talking about festivity through the parish, but having groups of family coming together through the parish, we have to support one another, um, and we, and we need help in living out those other areas. I had a conversation a couple of years ago, uh, this community in the Oklahoma City area that um, they do or did, and I think they still do, 
Tuesday, once a month, Tuesday, um, with the hours, they would pray the liturgy together and then have uh, a potluck and then just live life together. But it was all centered around that, that prayer of Vespers uh, on Tuesday nights. And uh, you mentioned something in there. You, you are a, you are a Benedictine oblate, and you mentioned in there that that prayer shapes our days. And I'm thought how very Benedictine of you, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the second question that I have here is, um, as a Benedictine oblate, how you, we tend to think of of these kind of pieties as being a personal thing, but how does that affect the way that your family lives out faith? Um, because obviously the obliture, the, the vow that is made is, is your vow to make, but what does that look like in the rest of your family as you live out the faith in a very particular way? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, there are a number of things here, but I, first of all, I just want to say that an oblate is, uh, generally a layman. It could be a, a, a diocesan priest as well, but generally a layman who, uh, joins to a particular monastery and you unite your prayer and your way of life, even though you're not living there at the monastery with what the monks or the nuns are, are doing really prayer. Uh, and really to me, part of the reason I wanted to become a Benedictine oblate is the connection to family life. So when I read what St. Benedict says about the abbot, right, I see myself as the abbot of my home. Um, and St. Benedict says that everything that's necessary for the life of the monastery should be contained uh, within it. And so you really see that Benedict is trying to create a little culture yeah. uh, where everything is ordered, work and prayer together, reinforce one another uh, to give honor and glory to God. And of course, that's what I want for my family. I want all of us kind of working together for the honor and glory of God. Now, that sounds nice, right? But I have two teenagers, so <laughs> it, it's not that easy. Uh, but how do, how do we do it, right? And, and we pray together in the morning. We pray together in the evening. Those are the hinges of the day. You know, I do morning prayer. Uh, with my kids. And then in the evening, you know, we try to have a little bit of silence during our prayer. Um, You know, Lexio Divina is something that's very important for families kind of uh, drawing from Benedictine spirituality, learning to listen, Uh, to unplug a little bit, to listen, to to be able to meditate upon the scriptures. Uh, These are all great Benedictine things. But then to see how we are building up culture, we're building up our family through our work, and, and how this flows from our prayer. So the Benedictine ideals in many ways uh, shape our family, but also I think the kind of education that we want for our kids. And so I have seen uh, that classical education has really supported our goals as a family. And they are very Benedictine in some ways, right? The Benedictines are the ones who kept the liberal arts going um, in, during the so-called dark ages, right? After the fall of the Roman empire, preserving classical learning, um, integrating that into our study of scripture and our life of prayer, um, and then having this poetic approach. So that's how Newman describes the, um, the Benedictine's spirituality. It's just sitting underneath something. Um, and so really trying to bring that into the classical approach to education as well, educating through beauty, uh, through this poetic knowledge of a direct experience of the reality that you're studying. So that's another way that I've seen uh, that my Benedictine spirituality kind of guiding my family life and work. So I want to take one other kind of little tangent, but I think that it's all connected here as we're looking at living an integrated life formed by our faith. Uh, you you have this book that you've written about brewing beer, right? Uh, and 
I'm, I'm looking at it specifically in terms of how our leisure pursuits, and yours, of course, very Benedictine there with, with the whole um, brewing of beer and, and working with your hands in a very particular way. We're, we're such a, a digital society that I think a lot of times we forget what it means to work with our hands, uh, both in our, in our jobs and in our uh, leisure pursuits. Talk a little bit about how even the, the observance of our leisure and the practice of our leisure can help restore humanity and, rest, and, and evangelize culture. You know, and, and that is, there's some irony there. Uh, or it could be tension, right? I mean, in the, in the classical world, the leisured class did not work with their hands. Uh, and St. Benedict radically broke with them. He said that, you know, monks are truly monks uh, when they work with their hands. Um, and I think that, particularly when I think of how we live the Lord's day, it is not only a day of leisure. I mean, the Lord is, is, is freeing us from the tyranny of work, you know, that, that we simply live for our work. But there are ways in which working with our hands is now a key leisure activity. So it's like the monks, right? I mean, in their school of the Lord's service that Benedict says he wants to found, scola, meaning school, place of leisure, he has the monks working every day to, to reinforce that. And so I would say Sunday is a great day to do things together as a family in terms of work. Right? There are recreational things like throwing the football around or going for a hike. Um, but it also is a day, like a great day to work in the garden, maybe not this time of year, uh, but to, to bake together or to brew, right? I mean, Sunday's a great day for brewing. Uh, the reason I wrote that book is as a Benedictine oblate, it, it is a great exp expression of Benedictine work and spirituality. Benedictines invented brewing as we know it, you know, kind of perfected the techniques that we have in, in the European tradition. And they're still amongst the best brewers in the world today, those Trappists um, in Belgium within the Benedictine family. So, you know, I think something like that, even just, and I have had my kids brew uh, with me and it's, it's a fun thing to do. We're talking today with Dr. Jared Stott. The book is Restoring Humanity, Essays on the Evangelization of Culture, available on Divine Providence Press. We've got a link to that over on our social media. Dr. Stott, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it was great talking with you. Well, what about you? What are some of the ways that you celebrate the Lord's Day? What are some of the ways that you spend your leisure time uh, individually or as a family? Come over and tell me on my social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. I specifically want to know if there's something that you do to celebrate the Christmas season that's a little bit different than, uh, than maybe the cultural expectation. Tell us, share it, and uh, maybe we'll be able to celebrate in that same way as well. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Jared Stott or you want to share it with someone who you are close to, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And there's more to my conversation with Dr. Stott available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. You can become a member of that Patreon support community by going to OutsideTheWalls.com. Top right-hand corner of the page, you'll find a link that says Patreon, support the show. Uh, Click that link, follow it in. You'll find some of our extra segments are available to the public. You can listen to them, see what they're like, and then just follow the directions to become a member of that patron support community and get access to all the extra segments that we have ever produced. There's also some other goodies there as well that I think you're going to like. Well, let's go ahead now and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. 
That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Try out Verbum for yourself by going to Verbum.com. Try it free for 30 days and then just decide how many books you want on your bookshelf. Uh, I have the Gold Library myself and I use it all the time as it helps me engage with scripture and with church history and engage with those things together. Well, our reading from scripture today comes from uh, from Colossians chapter 3. This is one of my favorite passages. And it's one of those passages that St. Paul just kind of lays out uh, a framework saying here, in a nutshell, is what it means to be Christian. Uh, and he does this in a couple of different places, but this one I think is perhaps the, the most concise, uh, where he just says, you know, if you're looking for a path, if you're looking for a way, this is the way. Brothers and sisters, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If one has a grievance against another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also do. And over all of these, put on love. That is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of Christ control your hearts, the peace into which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As in all wisdom you teach and admonish one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That reading comes from the book of Colossians chapter 3, and here, there's just so much. It's just, uh, there's one place I always go. It's right to the beginning where he says, put on then. Uh, some of the translations that are out there say, clothe yourselves. As if Paul knows and is saying to us, listen, I know this is not your natural state, but it's okay to clothe yourselves. Put this on. Put on compassion and kindness and gentleness. Even if you don't feel compassionate or gentle or kind, Put on these things as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put this on to bear with one another and to forgive one another and to put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I love this. Let the peace of Christ control your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts is uh, the translation that I'm familiar with. Let the peace of Christ have its way with you. We are not often a peaceful people. We, we I don't know that we naturally know how to be at peace. I, I, and I say this from just experience as a parent, right? <clears throat> my children, in their natures, uh, got a little bit of my extrovertedness and my kinetic activity, right? They want to be doing and even at bedtime, as we try to get them to sit and we, at Advent, we light the candles and we have them be quiet and we calm everybody down. Everybody's just kind of shuffling in little ways. All of us have difficulty, I think, letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. There have been a couple of times I've gone to a monastery for a, um, for a silent retreat. And it takes me maybe two days, maybe three days to get to the place 
where I can just be quiet enough in my own thoughts to really let the peace of Christ rule in my heart, right? I can, I can shut my mouth, believe it or not. I can. I don't hear on the, on the radio because that's bad radio, but I can shut my mouth. Um, but even then, then the internal monologue starts. Then all of the extra things that are going on inside my head, they get a little bit louder because everything on the outside is getting quieter. And so it takes uh, the I think I was about to say it takes effort, and it does take that. But I think it takes the grace of God and our cooperation with that grace to get to a place where we can actually allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. This is the peace into which we were called in one body as members of one another. So while we're thinking about peace, let's turn our attention now to our reading from church history, which comes from a sermon by St. Leo the Great. Although the state of infancy, which the majesty of the Son of God did not disdain to assume, developed with the passage of time into the maturity of manhood— And although after the triumph of the Passion and the Resurrection, all his lowly acts undertaken on our behalf belong to the past, nevertheless, today's Feast of Christmas renews for us the sacred beginning of Jesus' life, his birth from the Virgin Mary. In the very act in which we are reverencing the birth of our Savior, we are also celebrating our own new birth— For the birth of Christ is the origin of the Christian people, and the birthday of the head is also the birthday of the body. Though each and every individual occupies a definite place in this body to which he has been called, and although the progeny of the church is differentiated and marked with the passage of time, nevertheless, as the whole community of the faithful, once begotten in the baptismal font, was crucified with Christ in the Passion, raised up with him in the resurrection, and at the ascension, placed at the right hand of the Father, so too it is born with him in this nativity, which we are celebrating today. For every believer regenerated in Christ, no matter in what part of the whole he may be, breaks with that ancient way of life that derives from original sin and by rebirth is transformed into a new man. Henceforth he is to be of the stock, not of his earthly father, but of Christ, who became the son of man precisely that men could become the sons of God. For unless in humility he had come down to us, none of us by our own merits could ever go up to him. Therefore, the greatness of the gift which he has bestowed on us demands an appreciation proportioned to its excellence. For blessed Paul the Apostle truly teaches, we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. The only way that he can be worthily honored by us is by the presentation to him of that which he has already given to us. But what can we find in the treasure of the Lord's bounty more in keeping with the glory of this feast than that peace which was first announced by the angelic choir on the day of his birth? For that peace from which the sons of God spring sustains love and mother's unity 
It refreshes the blessed, and it shelters eternity. Its uncharacteristic function and special blessing is to join to God those whom it separates from this world. Therefore, may those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, offer to the Father their harmony as sons united in peace. And may all those whom he has adopted as his members meet in the firstborn of the new creation, who came not to do his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. For the grace of the Father has adopted as heirs neither the contentious nor the dissident, but those who are one in thought and love. The hearts and minds of those who have been reformed according to one and the same image should be in harmony with one another. The birthday of the Lord is the birthday of peace. As Paul the Apostle says, for he is our peace, who has made us both one, for whether we be Jew or Gentile, through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. That reading from church history comes from a sermon by St. Leo the Great and comes out of the breviary, out of the, the office of readings during the octave of Christmas. So here we are. How do we celebrate fittingly. Well, first is to be a people of peace, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and to, uh, to draw us to be thankful. What are the places that you are experiencing a lack of peace, a presence of anxiety? Invite Christ and his peace into those places in your life. Remember, all throughout Advent, we were asking you to, uh, to acknowledge and to identify those places in the world, whether that be the, the world writ large or whether that be your own circle of influence, your sphere of influence, identify the places where you could say all is not right with the world. And then at Christmas, invite Christ into those places to bring his peace, to bring his healing, to bring all that his presence, all that his nativity, all that his incarnation uh, implies that his presence would be in the midst of those difficult places. And so now, here we are. <clears throat> We're in the Christmas season. Now, open your hearts and ask, what is it you want to do in this place that I identified during the Advent season? How do you want me, as one who bears your image and as one who carries you in my spirit, how do you want me to make your presence manifest. And if that's not difficult enough, how do you want me to celebrate more fully as a Catholic this Christmas season, all the way through to the baptism of the Lord, and maybe even a little bit beyond? Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Merry Christmas to you. Today's show is brought to you by Carrie Carlson and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. Join the ongoing conversation over at Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On Twitter, the handle's at OutsideTheWalls. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices.